Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with James B. Conroy, the author of The Devil Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little about yourself and how you got started on this project. Sure. Well, um, I uh, practiced law in Boston for, uh, uh, what was it, almost 30 years um, and uh, really had always been fascinated by history from childhood on and uh, always wanted to write history. And uh, now that I'm retired from the law, I have a full-time focus on that and enjoying it very much. Wow. Tell us about the title. How did you get the title, The Devil Will Get No Rest? What's the meaning behind that? Well, uh, the book is, as you know, is about the Casablanca Conference of January 1943, where FDR and Churchill and their combined high command met together for 10 days in uh, Morocco to plan the offensive stage of the war. And uh, in one of those uh, sessions, Churchill met with the American general who commanded the American Eighth Air Force in England. Uh, and uh, there was a difference of opinion between them. Churchill uh, and the British uh, were bombing German cities and industrial areas by night to um, keep their casualty levels uh, acceptable, if you will. Whereas the Americans were bombing by way of precision bombing, as they called it, uh, by day. And um, uh, the American general, Ira Eaker, finally convinced Churchill that by doing both, bombing them day and night, uh, they'd keep the enemy up. They'd never be, get a rest. They would always be under stress and uh, stretch their resources then. And Churchill ultimately said, yeah, I like it. The devils will get no rest. So that's where the title comes from. Casablanca, tell us about the significance of that location. Yeah, Casablanca was um, and is a, um, a substantial city in Morocco, and um, the Americans and the British together had only recently liberated North Africa from um, actually French imperial uh, control, because the French at the time, having been defeated by the Germans, were really under the German thumb. And um, Churchill and FDR were looking for a place to meet where... Um, their senior commanders could get reasonably quick access. And because of the uh, Anglo-American army was in Morocco, uh, they decided that Casablanca was a good place to have that meeting. Uh, ironically, it had been bombed by the Germans only two weeks earlier. So this was an active war zone. And had the Germans known who was there and why and where, I'm sure it would have ended badly. Was the plan top secret to meet there? Yeah, it certainly was. Um, the um, the circle was kept as tight as possible. People who knew what was going on and where and when, and it ultimately was successful. But uh, I got to tell you a quick story. Um, at one point, a Spanish spy working for the Germans uh, sent a telegram to Berlin saying that FDR and Churchill were meeting in Casablanca. And uh, some German officer translated Casablanca as White House. So 
the Germans thought they were meeting in Washington and not in Casablanca. <laughs> now, tell us about President Roosevelt and this trip. What about his condition and the long trip? Was it dangerous? Yeah, it was dangerous. Uh, first of all, all all air travel was a bit iffy in those days. The uh, reliability of the engines and the you know, the, the equipment was not nearly as good as it is today, similar to the way cars were in those days. You'd see cars on the side of the road all the time. Now you rarely do. So there was that danger. And secondly, when they approached the area of North Africa, it was within range of German aircraft. So that made it doubly dangerous. And in addition to that, FDR, you know, had been stricken with polio as a young man and was confined to a wheelchair, not in great health, and uh, just about to turn 61, which in those days was considered old. So this was no easy trip for FDR. Now tell us who attended the meeting at Casablanca. Well, apart from Churchill and FDR, um, Charles de Gaulle, who was the expatriate leader of the Free French Movement, the resistance movement in France. And uh, in addition to the three of them, uh, the entire combined high command of the British and the Americans, uh, the American Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the British uh, Chiefs of Staff Committee, and uh, many of their other senior generals and admirals. So this was really a gathering of titans um, in one place for 10 days. And uh, when I first learned about it, I thought there's got to be a story there. And it turned out that there surely was. Now, did Churchill want to meet at another location? Tell us about that. Well, Churchill would have loved to have met in Marrakech, um, not too far down the road from Casablanca, about three hour drive through the desert. Um, but Marrakech was very lightly defended and uh, full of spies and not a very secure location. So the American military simply would not uh, allow that to happen. And the fallback position was Casablanca, which was better defended and uh, easier to isolate and to protect. Now, there were some um, notably absent people from the meeting. Why? Who were these people and why? Well, Stalin and his generals were critical allies to the British and the Americans in World War II. Uh, they were absorbing by far the brunt of the German military uh, and um, essential to victory. Um, and Stalin was invited to the conference, but the Battle of Stalingrad, which was the turning point of the war in Russia, was going on while the conference was being held. So Churchill and his military advisors were unable to attend. Tell us about the security of Casablanca. Well, um, after the Americans took Casablanca, um, under the command of General uh, George S. Patton, by the way, uh, who was also at Casablanca, uh, Patton was in charge of security for the event. And uh, what they did was uh, commandeer a uh, very nice, relatively new resort hotel and a swath of very fancy villas, private villas owned by wealthy Moroccans and wealthy Europeans and just moved them all out to uh, the quarters hotel uh, for these 10 days and surrounded the whole thing with barbed wire, number one. And number two had anti-aircraft guns and tanks and all sorts of uh, fighter planes circling overhead, uh, elite British and American troops, very, very highly protected, very secret. 
Tell us how prepared were the British for the meeting? Well, the, the disproportion of preparation uh, between the British and the Americans was startling, really. Um, the British were as well prepared as, as anyone could possibly be. They had met for weeks among themselves to come up with a coherent plan and position. Uh, they had prepared beautiful white papers on all the important issues. Uh, they brought a total of 72 officers to the meeting and a headquarters ship. Uh, the Americans brought a total of seven officers to the meeting and three loose-leaf binders, one of which was titled, People You May Meet and Places You May See. So the level of preparation was lopsided by far in the British direction. Now, people in that community, they had a lot of rumors about what was going on there. What were some of the rumors? Yeah, you couldn't help but notice something was going on and people were speculating wildly about what it might be. There was rumors that the Pope was coming with the uh, King of Italy to uh, negotiate a, an Italian surrender. Uh, there were rumors that Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, was coming. Uh, just about every rumor you can think of, except for the truth of um, the combined Allied command meeting in one place within range of German bombers, which I think would have been too crazy for anybody to even think about as a rumor, ironically enough. Now, you had some great maps in the book. Uh, what does the maps tell us about the attack? Well, uh, the maps are designed really to show the state of the war at the time of this conference in January of 1943, which on the Pacific side, um, the Americans had defeated the Japanese Navy at the Battle of Midway and the Battle of Coral Sea in the spring of 1942. And that had checked the Japanese ability to wage aggressive war, to conquer more territories. But the Japanese were still heavily dug in around their home islands, controlled really the whole arc of territory around their home islands. And that was the challenge to how to dig them out of that. And on the European side, uh, Germany dominated Europe, the continent of Europe, almost completely. Um, apart from occupying the vast majority of the continent, uh, the so-called neutrals, Spain, Portugal, Sweden, Switzerland, were pro-German and really aiding and abetting the Germans. So it was really a terrifying situation in Europe with this total Nazi dominance and the um, you know, the purpose of the conference was, well, how are we going to begin to attack that and roll that back? Now, there were lots of military leaders. Roosevelt and Churchill, they met by themselves many of the times. What are some of the stories there with their meetings? Well, as you say, the while the generals and admirals were meeting separately and negotiating and hammering out a deal as to what the new strategy would be, coming from very different points of view on that, uh, Churchill and FDR spent most of their time together for those 10 days, uh, mostly in FDR's villa that had been commandeered, uh, sometimes in Churchill's, um, discussing diplomacy and the military issues and politics and just kind of entertaining each other, um, which they like to do. Um, and then three times during the conference, um, Churchill and FDR met with the generals and admirals together as they were making progress and hammering out specifics. 
uh, and Churchill and FDR, um, you know, joined in those meetings really as equals rather than as superiors. And the conversations were very frank. They were very candid debates and discussions among everyone in the room. And um, it's really kind of refreshing to see that the, you know, the better idea is what would prevail, not who had the higher rank or the more important position. So it's kind of, I think, a model for what we might be doing these days ourselves if we put our minds to it. Absolutely. And your book, you showed a lot about the different personalities of the people and how they got along and what they did. Can you tell us about some of the personalities, Admiral Keene, George Marshall, General Arnold, the note takers? There were so many people. Yeah, well, uh, the, the book is a character driven book, um, which I believe is the best way to approach these things to make them interesting to dwell on the personalities and how they interacted, uh, how they argued with each other, how they socialized with each other, um, what they thought of each other, because most of them wrote memoirs or diaries or letters and were interviewed after the war. And I really uh, wove all that together to show how those character dynamics worked. Uh, briefly put, and I can only do it very briefly here, um, Marshall was a very stern, disciplined, uh, no-nonsense kind of manager who it was said uh, took command of a room by walking into it, uh, just a, a born military leader. Admiral King, the head of the U.S. Navy, was all of that, but also a difficult, very uh, emotionally immature, uh, narcissistic character uh, who made trouble for the fun of it. Uh, and was really roundly despised by his fellow officers. At one point, General Eisenhower wrote in his diary, uh, one way to help win this war might be to get somebody to shoot King. So King made for a difficult negotiator. And on the British side, um, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, uh, General Sir Allen Brooke, was a brilliant strategist uh, and nothing like an armchair general. He had really saved the British at Dunkirk, hands-on, and uh, same in World War I, and uh, came to this conference as a really well-informed, brilliant strategist who eventually convinced the Americans that the British approach of coming up through the Mediterranean rather than crossing the Channel in 1943, which they were not yet prepared to do, uh, was the right way to go. And indeed, that is the approach that was eventually taken. Now, tell us about these note takers. What role did they play? Yeah, they were there were two brigadier generals that were the note takers. So that's the level of importance of this, uh, one American and one British. And they would sit at these meetings and take extensive notes and then literally overnight have to churn out the minutes of that meeting for the next day so that when the uh, military folks assembled in the morning, they could review the minutes, get a grip on where they were, and uh, go from there. So that was in itself a demanding, exhausting job. And um, uh, the British note taker, in particular, Brigadier General uh, Vivian Dykes, uh, was quite an interesting, humorous character who wrote a lot about uh, all these interactions and personalities. And that finds its way into the book, too. Now, you had a nugget about Eisenhower. Was he there? What did you learn about him? 
Yeah, Eisenhower was there. He he was there for about three days. Uh, he was the supreme allied commander in Europe at the time and based in Algiers, because at this point in the war, the Americans had not yet fired a shot in Europe and had not yet dropped a bomb on Germany. It was really all a British show, but they needed an American commander because they knew that in short order, the Americans were gonna be the dominant power. So Eisenhower came to the conference to basically brief the generals about the course of uh, the war uh, against the Germans in Tunisia, which was the only holdout in North Africa uh, still held by the Germans. And uh, Eisenhower was a great organizer, uh, a great uh, leader in his way, manager. Um, everybody liked him. He really knew how to handle people, but he was really not a deep strategic thinker or, uh, you know, he had never had any, any combat experience. And the British, who were vastly more experienced in both ends, uh, really kind of embarrassed Eisenhower by his lack of preparedness and sort of amateur approach to things. Um, and it was really kind of an eye-opening, different view of Eisenhower. Now, Churchill and his military strategies, what did you learn from your research in that area? Well, Churchill, unlike FDR, had been a military man his whole life. He, uh, he went to Sandhurst, which is the British equivalent of West Point, uh, was an officer in the British Army for a number of years, uh, a veteran of three wars, uh, a colonial war in Sudan, in which he participated in the last cavalry charge in British history in 1890, the Boer War and the First World War. And he had also written two dozen books on military history and was his own secretary of war, basically, all over the military details in and out, a real master at it. Uh, FDR had none of that, had never served in the military, uh, had never been particularly acute about military matters until the war began and then had to play catch up. So the British had much more experience, much more depth, 300 years as a great power, which the Americans had none of. And it was kind of a turning point, really, uh, where the British were dominant at that table at Casablanca, really for the last time, as the Americans learned from the experience and as they continued to meet and strategize in the future, uh, were much better prepared and much closer to the British level of expertise and experience, but not at Casablanca. Now, you gave us examples in your book about the men eating and drinking together, and they came up with a plan. What can leaders today learn from this event? Well, um, the, the interesting point on this is that there had been several meetings in, in prior years between the American and British high commands uh, in London or in Washington. And what would happen is that the home team after these meetings would go back to their offices and the visitors would go back to their hotels and they really didn't socialize much or really get to know each other. Whereas at Casablanca, surrounded by a barbed wire for 10 days, you know, they ate together in the hotel restaurant, they went to the hotel bar, they hung out in each other's rooms, they walked on the beach together and really formed friendships and personal bonds that um, made the foundation of that special British-American relationship that to a large degree continues today and certainly made it 
much more, uh, much, much easier to win the war and to cooperate with each other, knowing each other and forming those personal bonds. Now, Roosevelt worked uh, in many situations. Did he attend some of the drinking parties? Uh, he didn't go to the bars, but he hosted cocktail hours and dinners at Casablanca. So, you know, they had American uh, cooks and bartenders and such, uh, you know, dragooned from the, uh, the mess cooks and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, he would have dinners just about every night and cocktails before dinner and after dinner. So that was, uh, you know, largely uh, business off the table, just get to know each other, have fun, uh, you know, in, enjoy that experience and that bonding experience. So that played an important role, too. It's the story about de Gaulle. Oh, well, we don't begin to have time to cover Charles de Gaulle, but... Uh, you know, these are all big egos, as you can imagine. The president of the United States, the prime minister of Britain, the heads of all the British and American military services, all of whom were big egos and titanic figures. But de Gaulle had an ego that dwarfed everyone else's, just really the narcissist in the in the flesh, um, would say no to everything that was asked of him, refused to cooperate, um, just stood his ground and dug in the whole time until toward the end, uh, Roosevelt managed to charm him into appearing at a joint uh, public press conference for uh, war correspondents who were flown in for the occasion. And uh, photographs were taken of him shaking hands with his rival French general, which sort of sent out the word to the Western world that the French were united and were going to work together with the Gaul. Uh, turned out to be really pretty much a public relations uh, illusion. And de Gaulle turned out to be the dominant figure and eventually went on to be the president of France after the war. The visits of the sultans of Morocco. What did this picture tell us? And what is what did you find out about that? About the photograph of the handshake? Yes. Yeah, well, the other rival general was a general by the name of Henri Giraud who was a very accomplished uh, uh, military man and had escaped from German captivity in World War I and in World War II and was kind of a figure in France for that reason. Um, and he had uh, the blessing of the existing post-conquest French government, was sort of the establishment figure in a way, whereas de Gaulle was the rebel figure who you know, represented the resistance and the anti uh, uh, the anti-current uh, leaders of France. And, um, you know, part of the effort that FDR and Churchill put in at Casablanca was to try to reconcile them and get them to combine. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, Roosevelt almost tricked de Gaulle into <laughs> shaking hands publicly with Giraud. And uh, that photograph appeared in all the major American and Canadian and British newspapers and helped boost morale and create the impression in the world that the French were united with the Anglo-Americans, which had a good deal of PR value. Now, the visits of the sultans of Morocco, you had a really interesting picture there. What did this picture tell us? Well, the sultan of Morocco was a young man in his 30s, uh, and under the thumb of the French imperial uh, forces that controlled Morocco, 
um, but was given some degree of leeway and, you know, was seen by his people as their hereditary leader and a religious figure. And he had a good bit of sway. Um, and FDR held a dinner in his honor at Casablanca, which FDR, which uh, Churchill attended and uh, eight or so of the other major players. And uh, FDR spent almost that entire dinner uh, pouring thoughts into the Sultan's ear about uh, after the war, we're going to come in and help you develop. We're going to, you know, help you, your, your people learn skills and engineering. And, you know, you're going to become a stronger uh, country. And in five or 10 years at most, you're going to be independent of France. Of course, uh, Churchill, the imperialist, was appalled by all of this. But it was really kind of an interesting several hours to see FDR, you know, working on the Sultan and drawing him into FDR's wingspan, while Churchill kind of hopped and popped and unsuccessfully tried to change the change the subject, so that too is an interesting story. Another picture, FDR in the inspection of the troops. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that story. Yeah, well, FDR insisted on going up the road a couple of hours to visit, uh, to review really, the large American army that had assembled there preparing to go into battle against the Germans in Tunisia. And uh, nobody knew he was coming. Nobody knew he was in Morocco. And uh, this great army assembled for, uh, you know, an inspection review by their commander, General Mark Clark. Uh, and it turned out that Clark was riding in the Jeep with FDR, which uh, came as a total surprise and shock to them all, uh, boosted their morale incredibly, as you can imagine. And um, there's really a kind of a touching after story there that uh, Roosevelt caused letters to be written to the parents or wives or, or brothers or whatever, sisters of all the soldiers he had um, who had driven him around or protected him or prepared meals for him or served him. And also photographs of the American cemetery that was uh, created in, uh, in Algeria to... Um, to accommodate the dead Americans who fought to take North Africa. And he had that photograph of that cemetery with very neat white crosses and the rest, you know, sent to the parents and wives of all those poor guys who lay in that cemetery. And the letters that came back from them are really very touching. I found them in the FDR library in Hyde Park, New York. And they talk about just being thrilled to hear, you know, that the, their son had had the honor of meeting the president and, you know, the poor mothers who had photographs of their son at, in the cemetery, you know, one wrote back saying it was a comfort to know that her son was in a hollowed cemetery and not in some unmarked grave. So it's really quite moving. Yes. Now, you talk about the children of uh, Roosevelt and Winston Churchill's son. Did they visit also? Yeah, uh, all four of Roosevelt's sons were in the service. And two of them happened to be stationed in or near Morocco. So they were flown in uh, to be sort of aides to him, but also as a morale boost to them and to him. Uh, and Churchill's son was a commander of, uh, of commandos in uh, Morocco, and he too was flown in. Um, FDR's two sons, Franklin Jr. and Elliot, were personable, likable characters. Randolph Churchill, unfortunately, was not. <laughs> and... Uh, just the way the other British write about him, 
one of them describes him as a kind of a fungus on our party. So uh, he was a very difficult, obnoxious character. All of that's, again, a lot of human interest uh, that I try to put into the book. Absolutely. Another Carrie, Harry Hopkins. What about that character in the story? Yeah, Harry Hopkins was FDR's alter ego. Very, very close personal aide, uh, military civilian, everything important. Harry Hopkins had his had his fingers on it. And um, Churchill relied a great deal on his advice. Uh, he was there with uh, FDR and met with him, with everyone FDR met. And uh, very shrewd guy, very good judge of character. And uh, he wrote notes to himself as the meeting was going on, which I played into the book as well, about who these folks were, what they were like, whether FDR liked them or not, uh, how the meetings went. And all of those diaries and letters and memoirs and, re and the rest are woven into this book really from a character-driven point of view. Uh, I don't spend a whole lot of time on the numbers of landing craft or the production of you know artillery and that kind of stuff. That's in a lot of other places. People can find that elsewhere. But what I tried to make this book about is a human story uh, of human interaction. Yes. Now, that was an interesting story about the visit to the top of the tower. Can you tell us something about that? Sure. After the uh, conference ended on the 10th day, um, Churchill persuaded Roosevelt to go with him down the road to Marrakech, which he had visited and painted as an amateur painter in the 1930s and really loved. Uh, so he convinced him to go down there for a night and a day of kind of R&R, &R, which they did. They had a very pleasant dinner at the uh, Moroccan mansion that was the residence of the American diplomat there. And um, that too is interesting. You know, they had more than a couple of drinks and <laughs> sang songs and, you know, really, really had fun together. Uh, and then uh, before the dinner, actually, Churchill brought, had FDR brought up to the top of a minaret, a tower that was part of that mansion for a beautiful view of the sunset over the Atlas Mountains. Uh, and the next day, uh, when FDR left, Churchill had an easel and paint brought up there and painted that view uh, from the top of the minaret, uh, the only painting he did during the war. It's really quite beautiful. And had that sent to FDR as a gift. Uh, somehow or other, I don't know how, it wound up in the hands of Brad Pitt uh, who gave it as a gift to Angelina Jolie uh, when they were married. And after they were divorced, Angelina had it auctioned off at Christie's and it brought in $11.5 million. Wow. Now, FDR had a way with the press conferences. Tell us about that. You had a really interesting picture in the book on the press conference. Yeah, well, again, it was all top secret. Nobody knew who was there or why. Um, but toward the end of it, uh, they summoned the war correspondents from Algeria who were all in uniform. They had been made officers of the British, Canadian or American armies to subject them to military orders and censorship during this war. Uh, so they were all flown in for this news conference, not knowing who was going to be there or why they were going. And they assembled on the back lawn of FDR's villa and were stunned when out came FDR and Churchill and de Gaulle and Giro. Um, there's a photograph in the book of, of all of that. 
And um, it was at that press conference that FDR announced that there would be no negotiated peace with the Axis powers, that only unconditional surrender would be accepted. And that was pretty shocking because that had never happened in American history and almost never in world history. Wars almost always ended by negotiation. So to say that unconditional surrender would be the only way out uh, was a big morale booster for the West. There were critics who thought it might make the Germans and Japanese fight all the harder, but they were gonna do that anyway, in my opinion. And there was just no way that the Allies were going to leave the Nazis in command in Berlin or Mussolini in Rome or the Japanese warlords in Tokyo. So this was going to have to be a total clean slate, which it turned out to be. How did the deal win the war? Because there were so many individuals who were in conflict with ideas. How did it win the war? <laughs> well, basically, again, in very summary form, the Americans came to Casablanca with two big goals in mind. One was to keep fighting a very aggressive war against Japan, full bore. And the other was to cross the channel in 1943 and take on the German army dug in in northern France in 1943. The British uh, wanted just a defensive war in Japan, in the, in the Pacific, until Germany was beaten because Japan was, you know, in check. Their power was much diminished. They still had a long way to go to be beaten, but they would eventually be beaten, whereas the Germans were still immensely powerful, and that war could have gone either way. So long story short, over these 10 days, the compromise that was reached was that uh, the Americans could have a free hand in the Pacific, but would get no more resources there to, to fight that war, no more ships, planes, or men. But whatever was already there, they had a free hand to use. And on the European side, the Americans were eventually persuaded that it was not pos possible really to cross the channel until the spring of 1944, a year and a half in the future. And that in the meantime, the Allies would work their way up through the Mediterranean, where the Germans would have to spread their resources thin, and the Allies could attack them in Sicily to start with, take Sicily, open up the Mediterranean to Allied shipping, and then gradually start picking off other targets in the Mediterranean and work their way up the Italian boot, uh, drawing troops, you know, drawing German troops from Russia, which relieved the pressure on the Russians, and also drawing them from Northern France and bleeding them, frankly, over that year and a half. Uh, so that while the buildup took place in Britain for the big invasion, um, you know, that took place in June of 44, uh, the British strategy of working through the Mediterranean was really in com combination with building up and waiting a year and a half to uh, to hit the beaches in Normandy, uh, ultimately really did win the war. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Well, Deirdre, if you could tell me, I'd appreciate it because I haven't decided yet. <laughs> well, we'll be We'll be waiting for that next book. Thank you. I appreciate that. Again, we've been talking with the author, James B. Conroy. The book is entitled, The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.